developing leaders sometimes need to be reminded that they should be asking a lot of questions versus giving a lot of answers. Because it's through that asking of questions you can really get an understanding of what's going on and you can make people feel heard. And you know, that's, one, that's one of the first steps of opening up uh, a trusting relationship. Welcome to another CI for Life podcast. I am Rick Hyland with RLG International. This is a podcast for those individuals passionate about personal and professional continuous improvement. Our purpose, as always, is to provide current and future C-suite leaders the mindset, skill set, and tool set to become leaders of continuous performance improvement. Very excited about today's episode. Today's special guest is Bill Ambrose, an oil and gas executive who lives in Houston. Bill, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you on. I've known Bill for a number of years and uh, worked with Bill closely. Excited to hear your viewpoint on leadership. Let me go through some of your uh, bio and background, Bill, for the listeners uh, real briefly, and then I'll let you add anything. Uh, a graduate of Texas A&M, a bachelor's in ocean engineering, uh, Virginia Tech, a master's in mechanical engineering, then at the University of Texas with an MBA. Bill is a former vice president of New Build and Rig Recycling at Transocean, former SVP of technical services at Transocean, former president of Mammut Americas, former executive advisory council member for RLG International, and currently president and owner of BD Ambrose Consulting, LLC. Bill, anything else from your background that you think would be relevant to our listeners? Uh, thanks, Rick, for that introduction. Uh, you know, a lot of people ask me how I got into the oil and gas offshore industry, and you know, I tell you, it was combined of a love for the ocean and a little bit of a technical background that uh, got me started in it. And I always found it to be a challenging, exciting place uh, because it pushes you to always improve. You know, as I've learned over the last 20 years, it requires some tenacity to see it through the up and down business cycles that happen every every few years. Um, so whether it's extreme growth or severe declines in the business, it, it keeps it interesting. Yeah, I didn't know about the ocean engineering. Why ocean engineering? Uh, I always had a passion for the for the ocean and, and okay. creatures of the ocean. So to be closer to it, um, you know, I, I didn't want to do oceanography. Okay. Um, I, I like structures and big big equipment and things, and so that's what got me into ocean engineering. Oh, very cool. Okay, so Bill, I usually ask a question talking about and understanding people's leadership experience and what kind of or foundational experience, either positive or negative, that helped define your leadership style. How would you answer that question? Um, you know, it's a, it's a great question. It's, I think as leaders, we kind of all develop and we always continue to develop uh, as we're mentored by those around us, not just our bosses, but everyone. And I think I'm, I'm probably very fortunate to have had some very good leaders in my lifetime uh, that have, have grounded me. You know, as, as I think back on maybe a time when I was a young assistant rig manager, for instance, I can remember a situation where, you know, I made a decision that resulted in about 50 hours of downtime on the rig. And, okay. Um, and that was I, a big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal. And my rig manager at the time could have yelled and screamed at me, which was the case for a lot of them at that time in, in the industry. But, you know, he didn't. He asked me a really interesting question. He said, uh, what have you learned? Mm. And... You know, that conversation ensued uh, a discussion around business risk management. And so that was real leadership on his part because he turned an opportunity to learn into uh, a failure into, into an opportunity to learn. 
and I've taken that approach with failures uh, and that mindset going forward. So, I mean, that was a, you, you've got to encourage those kind of discussions. And it was even uh, further reinforced later in my career by a really incredible division manager who said, you know, you only need to be right about 70% of the time. Um, <laughs> otherwise, you're, 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 you're too slow. Uh, you're not leading the organization or the business forward fast enough. And so, you know, when you get into an environment where you can encourage that small failures are okay, because at the end of the day, it'll drive better results. Um, those were those those are some good times, good learning experiences in my early career. In fact, I just finished a book, and the gentleman in the book, who's the CEO of Avis, said he's right 33% of the time, and that's okay. So, yeah. good point. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, Rick, I think another really foundational moment for me having been involved in the Deepwater Horizon incident in the Gulf of Mexico uh, into that investigation, you know, when you, when you really understand the facts about what happened in that, on that tragic night and, and you realize as a leader in any organization, you can never let up your drive to prevent accidents. And, you know, there were kind of two things that I took away from that. The first is you really have to continually ask questions to ensure people understand their roles and, and your expectations. Mm. And the, and the second half of that, and probably even the more important one, is you, you have to empower people to do the right thing at all times on their own, uh, particularly when it's hard, and prove to them that you'll support them regardless of the outcome. I think you know, a lot of leaders will probably be shocked to find that people don't always trust that that will be the case. And so you, you have to demonstrate it and prove it. Oh, that's great learning. Tell, tell me how – I love your two points there. Ask questions and then empower people to do the right thing. How do you make sure that they trust that you'll, you'll actually support them when they're trying to do the right thing, even though it's hard? Well, I think it kind of goes back to that very first lesson I learned from that, that leader as a mm -hmm. young assistant rig manager is you, you, can't, you can't boil your top. You have, to, you have to have the presence and the mindset to support them through whatever that that challenging period is or whatever it is that they're reporting to you. Very um, good. I love so. it. Thanks, Bill. I love you share a personal insight there. Um, let's jump into the topic of mega capital projects. And I know you've had a lot of success there and you and I are very passionate about uh, uh, seeing that we improve in this area. Let me share a little bit of data with you before I turn the time over to get your insights. And, you know, this is such a big economic benefit for North America right now, all the capital that's being invested in our manufacturing sites, offshore, onshore, um, even in Asia, etc., around the world. Some of the data suggests that there are more than 2,500 capital and maintenance projects active in the U.S. alone right now, representing $393 billion in investment. Looking ahead, there are more than 10,000 projects globally in planning and engineering phase, representing about 1.7 trillion in investment. And then relative to the oil and gas industry in North America, there are 1,388 oil and gas projects in planning and engineering for a total of 557 billion. And those numbers are a couple of years old and maybe even out of date. It is a big opportunity. And yet we see, and I um, just finished reading Edward Morrow's, Morrow's book on leading complex organization. He's the present CEO of IPA, as you know, and he shared uh, some data in there that uh, is a little bit shocking, but I'll share it anyhow. 
that the petroleum industry is one of the worst or has the worst track record of any industrial sector in in completing complex projects with just over one in five being successful. And um, I know there's uh, great opportunity here and, and uh, particularly in the gas and the chemical sectors right now, great expansion. So even in some of our own RLG research based on our observations of the last 20 mega capital projects we've been on, we're finding, uh, I'll share a couple statistics there, Bill, and then get your insights. 80% of those missed detailed engineering deadlines. 75% of those projects, contractors did not follow the schedule. Um, we have some data showing that, uh, particularly at the front line, that 95% uh, of the time leadership uh, was what we would call adequate or less than adequate to perform the task. So there's lots of data out there. There's lots of opportunity to improve. Uh, Bill, what are your insights into any of the data that I just shared? Well, you know, I think it's it's honest, um, and it's sometimes hard to accept that. Yeah. But it's the it's the truth. It's the fact of kind of where project management is at times uh, in the oil and gas sector. And unfortunately, I probably lived through some of those messy statistics in my career. Um, you know, when you look at any of those kind of metrics where you fail to meet a deadline or you're below average or you didn't follow a schedule, you know, you can look at the root cause of uh, why those happen. And on any given day, you know, it's probably going to lead back to successful team behaviors and expectations were not established at the outset of the project and bought into by the whole team. And then a leader at some point didn't follow up to correct those behaviors um, during the project. And so those, that's where the, if you start well, you'll, you generally will, will execute and end well. And uh, that's where a lot of those statistics begin is not having those things in place. Yeah, very good. And I know you, as I mentioned before, you've led some very successful capital projects on time and on budget. When I first met you, you turned around Transocean's offshore brownfield capital project. And in fact, if rough and dirty numbers, you led a billion dollar turnaround in project savings over a three year period. So Bill, you're, I, I wanted you on the program to kind of share your insights on if I made you give me the top five key success factors in, in bringing mega capital projects on time and on schedule, what would you, what would be your top five? Okay, if I'm limited to only five, I can, <laughs> just for sake uh, of time. Yeah, uh, I think I let me. I suggest let me suggest the first one would be uh, alignment on the vision, and the team behaviors that will get a project to the goal line. Okay. Um, I think the second second thing is plan, 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 <laughs> and then when you think you're done, plan some more. Mm -hmm. um, the third I found is you really need to have the team shoot for the best case everything. And so whether it's safety, schedule, costs, um, you, know, you have to shoot for what's the best case possible and then optimize it. Mm, I want to come back to that one, okay. Okay. Um, fourth is leadership engagement throughout the entire project to make sure that the it's being executed to the plan. Uh, and probably the fifth, and I found it sometimes lacking, is reward the successful outcomes that are driven by the behaviors that you expect. Ooh, I like from that the team. one too. Okay, so Bill, let's unpack those five. Let's maybe go through each one. 
one by one. Um, I like where you started. Number one was alignment on a vision and team behaviors. I know all the textbooks talk about doing that. That's important. But what exactly do you have to do to accomplish that? You know, it's um, a lot of people want to do elaborate things. It's, first, you don't overcomplicate it. Okay. This is really a simple thing. Uh, generally, you get the team that you need to execute something in a room and you include those really influential site supervisors. Yeah. And you talk about what does success look like, define it. And then once you have it defined, you talk about how you can achieve it and how you're going to measure it along the way, because that's one of the most important pieces that we sometimes forget about. Um, and then once you have those key things defined, you can talk about the behaviors. You know, what do we have to do as a team to drive us to that goal? Um, things like stop the job if something doesn't feel safe for anybody that's on the site. Um, meeting commitments, you know, highlighting risks very early when they're identified. Asking for help uh, quickly. Support one another. You know, don't fight through conflicts. Work together to resolve them. You know, if you can gain consensus on those things, mm -hmm. uh, the behaviors, the very, very beginning, the team's going to work better together, and you're going to set the whole project off on the right path to, to achieve the goals. Yeah, and if I remember right, you, you do this even in a half-day, full-day off-site. How, how do you usually set and get this team together to create these expectations? It's a good question. You know, I think every project's maybe a little bit different, but generally you have to unplug people from their environment. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I've always found that face-to-face -face at first is really important. So even in the digital world of today where you can do things via Skype or in other remote ways, um, at the very onset on a really big project, getting this right is more important than anything else. So you need to sometimes get people together to build the human relationships to make projects successful. Yeah, I agree. Great examples uh, of making this practical, Bill. Thank you very much. So let's go to your point number two, plan, plan, plan. <laughs> you know, this is um, one of the often tough phases of a project for a project team. Um, there are, you know, there's a lot of work to think about and to put on paper and no real tangible results to show for it other than a bunch of paper and charts. And so, it, you know, it's done by people that are generally the, the ones that are in the field that like to kind of, I call it touch progress every day, see okay. the real results happen. And so you've got to find a way to encourage people to, to really delve into the planning portion of the project. So for me, it's, it's really about establishing a, a routine of frequent regular reviews and check-ins. Um, and you have to build in celebrations. So when team members are not only identifying maybe risks in a project, but they're also mitigating those with, with clear action plans, um, you know, because projects rarely go to plan, right? Rick, I mean, that's always, you got to have a plan B or even a plan D yeah. or E sometimes for a lot of the work. And, you know, it's not, a, it's not always the fun part of the process. Right. Um, to do all those what ifs. Um, they just want to kind of decide on something and move forward. But if you don't get this right, um, your chances of delivering a project successfully go, go down dramatically. So as a leader, you really have to take an interest. You can't yeah. just let teams kind of go off and do this on their own. 
um, because if they don't think that you as a leader have interest, they're going to have less interest in the planning phase. Um, so, you know, as, a, as for, for the leaders out there, I encourage you to jump in, ask questions, cheer the team on when they do things right, when they show the behaviors of the planning process that, like you want to see them. Um, when they build in significant levels of detail and they mitigate risk, you know, throw, throw some celebrations in there. Uh, because it takes that level of detail and that interest on the part of the leader to get the team bought in that this is an important part of the, the planning process. Yeah, really good point. Reinforced planning, contingency planning. Um, just to dig into the whole uh, planning a little bit, and as I talked about at the outset, I'll repeat a couple of stats that we found. 53% of mega projects miss their feed milestone. In 94% of the mega capital projects, the quality was average or below average of the actual output of that stage or phase. So, Bill, uh, you talk about the importance of planning and, and this whole fell stage is just critical to getting the project right. Any insights into uh, how to do that, this important part of the project? Sure. Um, well, I, I'm going to reiterate, this is the most important part of the project. Yeah. Um, and, you know, without spending this time early to get an executable plan, something that's real and that can yep. be actually achieved, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of dead in the water. So for me, you know, everything, safety, resources, costs, schedules, supervision, procurement, you name it, flows from the front-end loaded planning process. Um, so you, you want to do it well to prevent your team from being in firefighting mode throughout the entire tail into the planning and, and into the execution phase um, because that's where you drive control into a project and that's what you you want projects to stay in control um, so to ensure you have a really solid front end of the loading plan it takes a lot of discipline and it's a little bit like what i just said a minute ago as a leader you have to practice what you preach and commit to at these kickoff meetings because the first time you don't you don't do what you committed to do, you're not involved, your team, they're going to lower their standards. And, and you can't let that happen. Uh, you have to make the reviews important. That means be present. Um, don't accept substandard report outs. So if, if we're talking about um, the schedules and the schedules aren't defined or they're sloppy, you know, stop the meeting. Have them go fix it and then come back and do it again. Um, you, know, you, you have to have really high standards in this phase. Um, you have to get your hands a little bit dirty sometimes in the process. Um, you may have multiple projects going on, but you're going to have to give enough time to each individual project that you, know, you understand what's going on. And sometimes I call those dipstick tests. Dip, you dip in just enough to you understand. You ask enough questions that you can challenge and, and, and understand where things are granular, on certain pieces of the project where you know there may be risks. Well, well said. Yeah, we, as you know, we get so good at firefighting, and what you're talking about is reinforcing the whole planning phase as more important than reinforcing all how great firefighting uh, skills. And uh, so you're you're flipping the switch, you're flipping the paradigm, if you will. I like Absolutely. it. So, so the third area you talked about, and I wanted to get you to elaborate on, was shoot for best case in everything, safety, schedule, costs, and optimize continually. Can you tell me a little bit more about best case and everything and, and how does that relate? Absolutely. Um, you know, I found out early 
in my project life, it's human nature uh, to want to avoid failure. Um, so project teams in general share this human nature. Or, um, or looking yeah. bad, right? Okay, so I don't want to look yeah, bad, yeah. Nobody, okay. nobody wants to look bad. So when they, when they build up these costs or these schedules for a particular project, you know, individuals in that process of building that scope, they'll add contingencies to safeguard their personal performance. Yeah. Um, you know, and then someone else in the chain that reviews it will add a little bit more, and then somebody else another. And so before you know it, you've got what, what I'll call a fat project scope with all these little hidden opportunities that you just, you'll never know about as a leader. Um, and so you're building in failure in some respects because you have no idea what true best case looks like. Right. Um, so, so how do you fix that? How do you, how do you, how do you look at what is best case every time? Um, in the planning and execution, you have to always ask that one question, what is the best case outcome? If everything goes perfectly with zero errors on anybody's part, and it's almost a theoretical question, but you have to get everybody thinking that direction. Right. You know, so how safely can it be done? How quickly can it be done? Um, how can you optimize this, this step or, or this process? Uh, what's the lowest cost option? You always have to kind of be asking those questions with the extremes, lowest, best, safest. Um, and, you know, encourage people and the project team members uh, to be honest. Uh, and a reason why they generally are not, and I find this all the time, is that project team members believe they'll be held to that. And I think that's what where you as the leader have to build the trust with the team that you want to know what the best case answer is. But at the same time, there's a reality in projects that they don't always go to plan. So you're going to build in the appropriate levels of contingencies, but not at a scope level. You're going to do it on a project total level. Hmm. And so you, you take the risk away from the individual scope. So you can see a very clear and clean picture of what that best case scenario is and then make a, a, a project level decision on what the right contingencies will be. And it's interesting when, when this really happens, what you'll see is all the things you thought were a critical path or a critical resource um, are no longer. It's generally something else. And so that's a that's a risk that would have materialized in the project had you not had you had that kind of what I call the fat scenario project approach. <clears throat> so to have a clean a very clean look at it allows you to see, you know, what's the true best case, where are the real conflicts, and now let's start to optimize that because now you can get everybody focused on let's strive for the best case and realize sometimes things don't go to plan. Mm, I love that. And as you know, we have the tool called TMP or Theoretical Maximum Performance to do exactly this with project teams. But, Bill, we still fight the... Uh, I don't want to look bad or what if my boss, you know, if I expose the the below the rocks, if you will, and the optimum best, I'll be held accountable to that number. And I know you've said it again, but then you, the team has to trust that that won't be the plan that will uh, just help you really get to what are the true critical paths. So again, we come back to that word trust through the leader 
and the teams that uh, you have to have that trust that they you know you won't hold them accountable to this theoretical line versus a theoretical plus and and you built the contingency back up at the project level not at the individual uh, work scope level is, is that right that's correct and you know this so TMP you know this is I've had this experience with you guys and it's a it's a wonderful process it, it's interesting though that it does take that mutual trust with the yes. project team um, and so you've got to get there uh, with that team as a leader that they know and trust that you're going to take the right decisions on that contingency yeah um, and you know it, that's a little bit of a journey together uh, to go down a, a rough road to on a project and then to believe that you're going to have that at the end if things don't go perfectly correct you know perfectly to plan um, and for me it, it's about two things one it's it's good communications and being approachable as a leader so from a, a leadership standpoint and good communications with teams you know it's it has to be a two-way thing uh, developing leaders sometimes uh, need to be reminded that they should be asking a lot of questions versus giving a lot of answers because it's through that uh, asking of questions you can really get an understanding of what's going on and you can make people feel heard and you know that's one that's one of the first steps of opening up uh, a trusting relationship yeah well said uh, yeah and you know oh go ahead yeah I was gonna say the second point of that is really about being approachable yeah you know, it's having that emotional intelligence whether it's a positive or a negative thing, to sit and listen to the feedback that your team has, because as soon as you as soon as you react in the wrong way, you're going to shut down the trust. Um, and so, whether it's a bad thing they're bringing to you or a positive thing they're bringing to you, you need to have a balanced demeanor, a balanced approach, so that they always want to share with you, regardless of what's going on, the real situation. Um, yeah, because that sets everything up for success when you can do that. Yeah. Well, that leads perfectly into our next area. Let's dig a little deeper on leadership. That was your point number four. And if I could, Bill, I'll just introduce again some of Edward Merrill's uh, research from complex capital projects or leading complex projects. And uh, one of the findings that uh, they had in that book was that instead of a project manager on a capital project, he calls it a project leader and that the four characteristics uh, that they're looking for in project leaders of mega capital projects, this ties nicely into what you just highlighted. First of all, they're looking for a generalist, not a specialist orientation. Uh, personality matters, uh, and emotional intelligence matters, and experience matters. Those are the four, if you write a job description for the project leader, not a project manager of a mega capital project, it's interesting you just tied in the personality and emotional intelligence, the approach, approachability, uh, the ability to listen, gather input, and then make decisions. And uh, the research showed that as you find those kind of leaders with that background, and then your project leader tasks are around stakeholder management, people management, communication, you already mentioned that, working effectively with contractors, and not doing others' work. I think that's a good one. And then the project practices, and this ties nicely into what you've already highlighted, setting clear objectives, clear priorities, aligning the stakeholders, building integrated teams, doing your full front end loading with high quality, and then strong owner controls. If you do those things as a project leader, 
you're going to have successful project outcomes. And they researched 56 mega capital projects and they found that only seven were successful or met the objectives of the project. And of those seven, those were the leadership characteristics and the leadership practices. So uh, I know that's a lot there, Bill, but what are your insights or comments about developing and having great leaders on mega capital projects? Yeah, you know, I, Rick, I agree with all those things. And um, I've often found that what people do is sometimes they take a, somebody who's been a very good technical leader yep. and they throw them in charge of a large project and they, they don't give enough credence or credit to what it takes from a soft skill standpoint so true. To, man to manage the whole process. They're great at the technical aspect, so the experience piece is wonderful. But if they can't balance that with the other aspects of being a leader around a project, um, the communication is to make sure everybody's on the same page, the approachability to build the trust. Um, you're not going to have the ability to execute on all of those 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 things that you just listed, objectives and priorities and stakeholder alignment. None of that happens without some of these soft skills. And so you 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 need that um, so that you can really get true leadership engagement. Because a lot of times what you find is things don't go wrong because the project team's not engaged. It goes wrong because the leader is, themselves is not engaged um, into the, everything they need to be from a soft skill standpoint. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I, I just, well, here's we got this technical book on uh, why capital projects fail, and it all comes down to, if you, using your word, the soft skills. And really, as, as we know, the soft skills are the hard skills that are going to help you achieve success on your projects. I mean, it's, it, it's interesting, Bill. We've got going on in the U.S. alone right now, capital projects in the neighborhood of $3 billion, $10 billion, $20 billion, $30 billion. These are major CEOs of companies. And, um, you know, we're, we're value, overvaluing technical expertise versus some of these leadership skills that we talk about. So I was thrilled to see in this study, in this book, and then uh, I know you also uh, value these skill, this skill set. So anything else on leadership before I move on to the, your last point? Oh, I think that that touches most of it. It's just, like you said, you, you have to have a balanced individual. And uh, if you can find the right person that can then bring together all four of those things of soft skills as well as the experience and kind of the generalist and the right personality, you're, you're going to set yourself up on the right path. Yeah, I know one of the others, you know, around the generalist approach is one of the, they found the key success factors is someone that's led a JV, in other words, where you've led by influence rather than command and control. And uh, you haven't necessarily been the operator on a project, but you've had to lead through influence is the way, the best way, because, you know, on these mega capital projects, you've got so many stakeholders, let alone how many Absolutely. different contractors you might have. So anyhow. Absolutely. Thanks for your insights there on uh, communication, approachability, et cetera, et cetera. So your last point was around uh, continuous improvement or reinforcement for the right things on the on the projects. Can you give a little bit more insight on your fifth point? Sure. You know, this is, um, it's interesting. So we talk about planning being important and clean schedules being important. And maybe the best way to explain this is a little bit with an example. Um, I can remember we were running a theoretical maximum performance at TMP session and uh, you know, rolling out this concept for the very first time at one of our one of our project groups 
And the idea was, let's get the clean schedule. Let's, you know, and so we, we started to see as we had, we had all these groups, you know, old breakout groups, resistance to this idea of sharing that what I call it the contingencies in all their pockets. Um, and so it, it was hard. We spent a couple hours and we weren't making a lot of progress. And we did a report out and there was one team that did it. Um, you know, they, they, prevented a, they presented a very clean schedule um, and nobody could really op, you know, optimize it in, in that moment any further than they had. They thought, wow, that, that's really, that's about as tight as that can get. Um, and so you have to, as a leader, you have to recognize, okay, somebody just did exactly what we asked them to do. They demonstrated that right behavior. So in that moment, we recognized that team for being excellent at what they just did. Mm. And you, know, you have to take those opportunities to, to highlight the, those behaviors. And then we did it again. So we, when you know, the team got moving and uh, they started doing stage gate meeting adherence and schedule quality reviews or boardwalks or whatever the, the process was we were asking for, um, you know, we recognized that behavior immediately because we wanted to generate an environment where that was the, the correct norm. That was the way we wanted people to behave. Um, and so you, you just have to find those opportunities and reward people uh, for demonstrating those right behaviors. Um, and eventually we ended up creating an environment where you know, people believed it was okay to set a really challenging target for a schedule or costs. Um, and they trusted that we would have their they're back if the downsides materialized, um, but we'd already identified what the downsides were. Um, so it, it, it was a great environment where if you reward the things you really want to see in a group, you'll see more of it. And all too often, we kind of reward the people that firefight when things go wrong. You kind of have to ask yourself, well, why did they go wrong? And what did we do wrong at the very beginning? Um, and why should we reward a behavior of somebody doing some firefighting? Um, and that's that was something we had to change because we were firefighters at the time. Yeah. So we were, we rewarded the things we really wanted to see people be, do from a behavior standpoint. So I'm going to go out on a limb. Was this the Singapore example you just shared? <laughs> that was a Singapore oh, okay. example. All right. I remember that. And I think the key point there, Bill, is you were there as a busy senior vice president out of Houston. You traveled to Singapore, probably had other reasons to be there, but you actually you know, three levels up, you sat in this session and helped us reinforce these, uh, the trust behind some of these behaviors and processes we were asking for. And, and to me, Bill, that's leadership. The fact that you would take that kind of time to be there and to help reinforce this. And you're right, after that, that, that news traveled that this was an acceptable type of behavior that we can get a clean schedule and we won't, you know, be held accountable for it uh, necessarily. So. Hats off to you, Bill, and thanks. Anything else uh, to summarize before we uh, close off this session? You know, I, I think we kind of talked about a lot of it, Rick. It really comes down to the right people with the right behaviors and doing the soft things, which are actually harder than the technical things at times. Right. Um, so it's, uh, it, it often gets overlooked, but it's some of the most important things to watch out for for good project success. Yeah, and what we've talked about here, Bill, not only just applies to projects, but any kind of continuous improvement, performance improvement. It applies to anything that we're trying to do in our uh, leadership experiences. To so, I really appreciate your time and and energy and passion around these topics, Bill. And 
Uh, appreciate you being on with us today. Uh, this has been another CI for Life podcast with Rick Hyland with RLG International. With questions, email me directly at rickh at rlginternational.com. Share with me your learnings and success stories. And until next time, live a life of sustainable, continuous improvement. Goodbye. Goodbye.